The Pike Place Market is, to a lot of people, the crown jewel of Seattle. It sees 10 million visitors each year. The gum wall. This wall has been going since the 90s. And there might be almost as many YouTube videos about it. And right at the entrance, that is the, the legendary, the famous fish toss. Let's see if this tastes as good as it smells. For this example, we found this stuffed animal store where everything were donuts, but they were stuffed animal donuts. For as long as Crosscut editor-at-large Knut Berger can remember, he's also been enchanted by it. I remember exploring the Pike Place Market when, you know, I was a young teenager and I would take the bus down to the market to, you know, I'd beg my mother to let me go down to buy groceries. And it was like one of these places that was like for adults. Hmm. It wasn't a kid's place. It wasn't a shopping mall, you know. And you could wander down stairways in these weird little cubby places where strange people were selling stuff. Or mm -hmm. It was totally fascinating. It was enchanting. And this, this was in the years before it was saved, you know. Mm. I just understood as a kid, you know, that it was a really, really special, weird place that I loved going. And there were so many layers to the market. I mean, people think the Pike Place market is like the arcade and the and Pike Place itself. But you got to get into the bowels of it. And it was, you know, there were places down there that were kind of scary. Mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, I never really wanted to go in that bathroom down there. You know, it was, <laughs> there were some weird looking dudes with overcoats down there. <laughs> um but you yeah. were seeing a part of life that was, you know, that it wasn't sanitized. Mm -hmm. It was just, it was, it was a magical place. It still is. Today, at age 115 and counting, Pike Place Market is one of the oldest continually operating farmers markets in the United States. We have to say one of because Pike Place is, for instance, handily outdone by Lancaster Central Market, which opened in eastern Pennsylvania in the year 1730. But anyway, Seattle's market was officially launched in 1907, well after the city was founded in 1851. Seattle was growing and Seattle had needs to supply fresh food, produce, all kinds of goods to a growing urban population. Before the market, the fresh produce coming into the city center from places like Bainbridge Island or the Duwamish Valley would get stocked in warehouses. And the warehouse managers would undercut the farmers and overcharge the consumers. Consumers felt they were being gouged. Farmers felt they were being ripped off. They weren't making anywhere near what the customers were paying. And so there was agitation to create a public market where farmers farm to table. That's what we call it now. Farmers could sell directly to the public, cut out the middleman, lower prices, give people fresh food, even fresher than they were getting. And uh, so in 1907, summer of 1907, the city agreed to um, host a public market at the foot of Pike Street. And um, it was instantly popular. I mean, uh, you know, Pike Place was, there There wasn't all the infrastructure there is now, which was built up kind of slowly over the years. But the farm wagons would come in, they'd get off the ferry or, you know, come up uh, from Duwamish and Georgetown, and they would sell right off the back of the wagons. And the place was packed. I read 
that by 1909, so two years after the market was created, there were at least 300,000 people coming to the market every year. And it worked, you know, off and on. It went up and down with pandemics and the depression and things like that. But it persisted. It flourished. And it became a hub of downtown dwellers from people that were poor and uh, unemployed and working farmers and working people and all the other kind of people that would want to want to shop there. But by the early 1960s, things were changing. Supermarkets had come along, you know, these giant grocery stores and whatnot began to sort of supplant some of the need for the market. And it, it became, you know, I think people would all admit that it was kind of down at its heels and frowsy by the early 1960s. But by 1960, decay had taken hold. Big business had moved on up the way and built itself new quarters. So we spent a lot of time in the last episode talking about urban renewal, that federal program designed to revitalize rundown neighborhoods in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And when Seattle power brokers were tossing around proposals to transform downtown, what came for Pioneer Square came for Pike Place Market, too. Some of the plans that came forth were, you know, basically obliterate the whole thing and replace it with high-rises and parking garages to, oh, no, we'll scale that back, but what we'll really do is we'll tear down most of the market, but we'll keep like an acre of it, <laughs> you know, in the, in the center piece there, which would, you know, be very minimal. And some people were persuaded by the the sort of least destructive of the plans. But others were not. You can probably guess at this point who was definitely not. You perhaps don't recall my uh, letter or note in writing that I did not approve it. But really, the first to make a big move on this wasn't architect and activist Victor Steinbrook. It was Wing Luke. He was at the time a Seattle City Council member and the first Asian American to hold elected office in Washington state. The year was 1964, not long after the adoption of that 1963 Central Business District plan we spent time on in the last episode. He was the first one to suggest, well, maybe we need to create a special district to protect the market. And this, of course, is in response to seeing these plans that are coming out in the early 60s that want to bulldoze it. And basically from that suggestion is when Friends of the Market formed later in 1964. Opposing the city's plan is a group known as the Friends of the Market. Friends of the Market was a private group of volunteers, and they got right to work, advocating for and fundraising for and in all kinds of ways supporting the market. And in a way, I think they viewed themselves, I mean, they still exist. I don't mean to put them in the past tense. They're still an ongoing advocate for the market. But it was like, you know, in a way, it was kind of like the market now had a, a lawyer or a public defender, <laughs> you know. Let's see, artwork. And then, of course, who was the first co-chair of the organization? Yeah. Victor Steinbrook. Of all the material in those boxes that Victor's son Peter is now stewarding, the ones we've been digging into during the past two episodes, the vast majority is about the fight to save Pike Place Market. 
I, I think I've got a couple of friends of the market. There's another box right. under there's this. Yeah, it's. Oh, here's another one. Yeah, there's a ton of stuff on the market. It's gotcha. way more than I have been able to. If you can imagine all this stuff we've already talked about that Victor kept in his files. Space needle sketches, newspaper articles he disagreed with, position papers he wrote, official complaints against him. Just multiply that by, I don't know, a hundred? He kept everything on the market. It was a relentless grassroots pressure campaign that lasted at least seven years. So, for example, he saved notebooks filled with to-do lists and plans. Except a lot of notes and sketches and commentaries. So there's one notebook here. On one page it says publicity. Letterhead of the Friends of the Market. Numerous letters uh, back and forth with city officials. He saved designs and slogans for campaign posters and pins. I'm curious, does this image ring a bell? (laughs) You keep pulling out these (laughs) surprises for me here. If you care at all for the market, let us have your help. (laughs) Leave your name, your contribution for legal aid, and turn up at the City Hall demonstration at 4th and James at noon, April 1st, from 12 to 1 p.m., no fooling. <laughs> Let's embarrass the old gray mayor and the old city corn sill. <laughs> so it's just, these are things that, in the files, that get you into the sort of nitty-gritty of the, the street fighting. And all of it has this personal mark because... You know, Victor is handwriting these press releases. He's making the to-do lists uh, for the strategy. And of course, he recruited and, and others recruited a great group of people to, to make that happen. The campaign was, was, was truly a grassroots campaign, the mother of grassroots campaigns in recent history in Seattle. The fight to save the market, it was dramatic at the time. And, according to Peter and Canute, it was, in retrospect, extremely symbolic. It was a turning point. The Pike Place market battle is the Gettysburg of the development wars of the 60s, 70s, 80s. You know, we have these other downtown development efforts and preservation efforts. But the Pike Place Market was the big kind of deciding battle on which direction Seattle was going to go. And so this is like getting to look at what the commanders and infantry, you know, (laughs) what orders were being given, what tactics were being used, where the clashes took place. But it was kind of a civil war. It was, I mean, it, it was a civic civil war that was being fought, and the two sides were decidedly uneven, yet the little guy prevailed. Well, how did that happen? I'm Sarah Bernard, and this is Crosscut Reports. Today, in the final installment of our series on Victor Steinbrook, the fight for Pike Place Market, this epic battle for the soul of Seattle. If one thing is clear in Victor Steinbrook's files, it's that this fight was a lot longer and harder than it might seem with decades of hindsight. You can see the battle's evolution in these boxes, how it gets more urgent over time. You can see the toll it took on the people involved. You can see how this fight changed the city of Seattle forever and how, in some ways, it really didn't. Because this kind of battle, it doesn't really end. It just changes shape 
and carries on. But you were part of the original campaign. As a I was, I was. You were, what, I don't know, 12 years yeah. old or something. And as we mentioned in the last episode, when Peter Steinbrook was a kid and he hung out with his dad, he'd often do things his dad wanted to do or his dad was already doing. He tagged along as Victor surveyed all the buildings in Pioneer Square, for instance. And he'd go and spend time at Pike Place Market. And not just spend time. Peter was basically born into the fight to save it. I, I definitely was throughout all of my preteen years from about yeah. age five on. <laughs> yeah. That's how I spent time with my dad. And it was kind of exciting too, you know, me fighting for something, you know, a worthy cause. And it, it was kind of put in moral terms too, that evil forces of urban renewal versus the little people and the farmers and the merchants and, you know, the shoppers and uh, low-cost goods. The city of Seattle proposes to save the market by proceeding with a large-scale urban renewal project covering a total of nearly 23 acres. Um, later, when the market battle really heated up, then I would go to hearings with him. Exactly who did select the members to be on the advisory committee. At City Hall on protest marches and carry signs. That was my first real experience at actual civic activism, you know, and starting at about age 10 or so for me. Victor Steinbrook was a pretty big name in Seattle by this time. He'd been one of the designers of the Space Needle, and he'd been putting a lot of public effort into the preservation of Pioneer Square and now Pike Place Market. But he was never one to just put his name on things. Victor was throwing every resource at these causes. You know, he he wasn't doing these things idly. I mean, some people get involved in causes and they lend you their name or they host a fundraiser or whatever. I mean, Victor's like giving his child. He's like in Pioneer Square. He's trying to buy one of the buildings so he can show everybody how you could revitalize it with a, a great restaurant or, exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's like putting it in there. Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah, I will employ my own child in this effort. <laughs> so Friends of the Market an organization that Wing Luke inspired and Victor Steinberg co-chaired. At first, its members were just trying to gently get the word out and remind people about the value of the market and the plans to tear a lot of it down. So at first, you know, Friends of the Market was doing kind of publicity. Mm. It would have fundraisers, champagne breakfasts, sort of PR. But in 1968 was when things started to get really serious. They realized the city's really pushing ahead with this redevelopment plan. The federal government's interested in funding part of it. Um, there's a cadre of private developers investing money and buying property around the market in anticipation of this. Another powerful supporter is the Central Association, a group of downtown businessmen which dreamed up the project to begin with. So it was gaining momentum. At, uh, these plans were debated at the city council. Uh, And most of the city council was supportive. Wing Luke wasn't on the council anymore. He died tragically in a a plane crash. And most of the council was in favor at one time or another of some version of the plan. The city's urban renewal plan has attracted some powerful supporters. Most visible of these is the city itself, which at public expense has printed thousands of posters, brochures, and booklets extolling the project's virtues.
As we've mentioned, there were multiple plans, but all of them would have knocked down the majority of the market's buildings in favor of high-rises and parking lots. And as with Pioneer Square, Victor's argument to the developers and city leaders was always, it's not just the market. It's not just the buildings. It's not just about historical preservation. It's a whole system. It's a whole community. It's people. Victor Steinbrook's position was the market isn't just the market. The market is an entire low-income inhabitant ecosystem. Uh, That ordinance, however, emphasizes market uses and uh, market activities. And that's the important thing, the retention of of uh, those uses. And, you know, Victor's sense was, we can fix it up. We can even use urban renewal money to fix it up. But we can also preserve a lot of what's there. And a lot of what's there is real. And it's poetry. It's, it's the stuff of life. And other cities have killed these places. Mm. Let's let's be a city that nurtures it, that keeps it alive. Um, let's see what this says. Goals, 1969. So Victor was writing down goals. He was making lists. So this is a, my dad's handwritten kind of basis for the Let's Keep of the Market poster that became mm-hmm. part of the campaign, a little sketch. Wow. Talk to each merchant regarding his stake in urban renewal, hotels and rooming houses, list, conditions, rents, taverns, list. Where will they go after renewal? He was a general heading into the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, City council, who knows personally? Serving a low-cost market center, keeping social mix, very important. You can see this thought process as he's literally making a list of all the stuff we have to do because now... Now we have to really get serious. It was a lot of work, and he and friends in the market did it all for free with the tools they had at the time. City council meetings, editorials in the paper. There was no internet. There's no blogging. Yeah. There's, you know, there's letter writing. There's going to council meetings, and uh, there's writing guest editorials or guest articles for the daily newspapers, of which, you know, mainly to papers at that time, the Seattle Times and PI. Yeah, and it strikes me that if Victor were living now, he would have a lot of uh, social media channels going. Oh, my going goodness, and... yes. <laughs> I, I can well imagine that. I I mean, did he was not egoless. Yeah. I think he, and I think he liked leading rather than following. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there are some things in the files, you know, where he's really arguing for his sort of nothing goes out without my say-so kind of thing. It does seem that in this effort, as with most efforts he was involved in, Victor was utterly uncompromising and quick to judge someone who he believed might be compromising. Some of the files he kept from this era paint a strong picture of that, as well as the heavy toll this work was taking on the people involved. More on that after the break. Public safety, reproductive rights, the arts, education, election security. These are the issues at the heart of our civic life. And they're just a few of the topics up for discussion at Civic Cocktail, 
the monthly event series produced by Seattle City Club and Crosscut and broadcast on KCTS 9. For more than a decade, Civic Cocktail has been connecting community leaders from Seattle and the state of Washington to the public through lively conversations about the most important issues facing the region. And you can be a part of that conversation. Join host Monica Guzman as she sits down with the people who help shape our civic life and asks the questions that help build a greater understanding of this place we all call home. To see what we're talking about next and to RSVP to the taping of the next episode, go to crosscut.com events. I think one of the most interesting things I found... So deep in Victor Steinberg's files, Knut found, once again, some drama. ...was in 1968. So Victor is co-chair of Friends of the Market with Robert Ashley. And Victor begins to hear that Ashley has made what he, he thinks of as positive comments about one of the alternatives that is being proposed. Oh, and um, like a development, one of the development proposals. Yes. And Victor writes him a long letter. There's a photocopy of his handwritten letter. And why a letter? Because actually, if you can believe it, when things were just starting to get very serious, Victor Steinbrook got an architectural fellowship in London and moved his family there for about a year or so, 1967 to 68. So he did a lot of his campaigning, even at this most critical phase from abroad. Our family lived in England, in London, and it was a crucial time for what was going on with the battle to save the market. And it was very difficult and stressful for my dad to be in England, in London, and not be in Seattle because it was a, become a, a day-to-day kind of thing. And so a lot took place over letters. Peter says Friends of the Market volunteer Elizabeth Tanner kept Victor abreast of pretty much everything via weekly letters. When Knut found this one specific exchange between Victor and Robert Ashley, he showed it to me, and I showed it to Peter. But this is dated uh, 19th March, uh, 19th of March, 1968. Okay, dear friend Bob, I've called Elizabeth and told her to release the statement on the position of the Friends of the Market over my signature, which I have authorized in writing. Apparently, things have gotten pretty bad. He says, I've written to you directly and through Elizabeth many times, and you've never replied or told me directly Mm. what was taking place. Did you feel that you could make the decision for all of us? And do you feel that you must convince or silence all of us so that the whole area can be demolished and the market made into a glorious something else? Can't you see that you are violating all of the cause that you have expressed so sincerely and eloquently previously? There were some proposals, for instance, that would have saved some part of the market but transformed most of it. Maybe Robert Ashley said something publicly to the effect of, well, I don't know, maybe that would work. He just doesn't understand why this guy is suddenly out making these claims. But from Victor's point of view, as is probably clear by now, there was no room for compromise. You must write as I have done, and you must let the public know that the market is not being saved and that many of us know it and are expecting better of Seattle. Um... I can only take your silence as being recognition that you cannot confront me 
with your change of attitude. In the boxes, Knut also discovered Robert's reply. But then I stumbled across Robert Ashley's answer. And it's these yellow handwritten pages. The handwriting is kind of shaky and not very good. Of course, my handwriting's lousy, so, you know, I'm not one to judge. But they look like the, it looks like the handwriting of somebody under some kind of stress. Hmm. Dear Vic, I sincerely wish that I could enjoy the luxury of putting on paper all my present thoughts regarding our market. The fact of the matter is I am probably time-wise, and time is energy, the most overextended guy in the city of Seattle. I haven't had a week's true vacation for nearly two years, and my doctor is convinced that I am a damn fool for maintaining the pace that I do. He says, uh, to intimate that someone has sold out is not only libelous, but perhaps the most callous, outrageous, and cruel observation that I have been a party to under such circumstances. Wow. So he doesn't really address the issue that Victor once addressed. Mm. He basically is saying, you know, I want to save the market from the people who want to destroy it. I'm the guy here in the trenches. I'm the one, you know, fighting the battle day to day. I'm not getting enough help from people. Mm. I'm tired. Um, and his last thing is, I do not have the desire or the energy to defend myself from my closest friends. Wow. And, and then he says, with high hopes for the future and happily still your friend, Bob. I didn't know anything about this falling out. And yet, there's evidence in the files of its consequences. Later on in 1968, on Friends of the Market letterhead, it's clear that Robert Ashley is no longer co-chair of the organization. His name is crossed out, and Victor is the only um, chairman of Friends of the Market. Still, Robert didn't give up. He continued to work on the cause, just in a different way, through a different group, called Alliance for a Living Market. Voters are now being wooed not only by the city and the Friends of the Market, but by such groups as the Committee to Save the Market and the Alliance for a Living Market. This fight certainly wasn't going to dwindle on Victor's watch, that seems clear. But not on Robert's either. And not with the dozens of other volunteers who dedicated time and effort to fighting and fighting and fighting. Between 1969 and 71, things got very urgent. So, this is from 1969. 1969. And... So this is when the city council is very, very close to making a decision about picking one of these plans. Mm -hmm. And Victor and company are, you know, starting to think lobbying the city council is not going to go anywhere. And so there's a broadside, uh, this big, big broadside. It's on very flimsy newsprint. It's chipped, it's yellowed, it's folded. But it's like a giant poster and it's all text, right? Wow. It's just all, it, it looks like the modern equivalent of something that they would have posted in Boston, you know, mm. around the time of the Tea Party. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's, it looks like a, a declaration of war. 
or a declaration of something, and it is. And, and it begins here, citizens of Seattle and King County in the name of common decency and the tradition and heritage of our region. The Friends of the Market summon you to our cause of keeping this low-cost market now existing in the Pike Place Market area for people for now and for the future. The central business, and this is all caps, merchants of greed are using urban renewal to murder the market by strangulation and rape through demolition, disruption of the entire area for more than four years by taking the heart of the market to give life to their swank hotel and luxury apartment plaza development by costly changes in that remaining market core to make it palatable to their plush plastic plaza as a phony nostalgic vestige of the past by relocating and driving out most of the businesses and farmers through rent raises and demolition by eliminating First Avenue North of Union Street for five blocks to Lenora as a people's streets, by relocating all the 600 people now living there, and in all ways consciously destroying the low-cost shopping, which is sorely needed by thousands of people while deceiving the public that the market is being saved. Wow. I mean, they go from this kind of moderate, Oh, we have 50,000 people on the petition and, you, sh you know, we need to save our heritage to this is class war. Mm -hmm. This is enrichment of the few at the expense of and displacement of people. Mm -hmm. uh, this is murder. This is rape. I mean, yeah, that is like a real leap of rhetoric. Peter, in fact, remembers this broadside. He handed it out. He wanted to oh, yeah. show me this. Yeah. Do you was, remember this? I sure do. I used to give, <laughs> hand those out in the market. Oh, really? For free uh, publicity, yeah. And he was one of the few who saw it being designed. And it was borrowed from the Irish Potato Rebellion uh, period of history. And I think that my stepmother, Marjorie, was doing a play at the time that was involved with the Irish Potato famine mm -hmm. and rebellion against profit takers. Mm -hmm. I remember the, the, my stepmother working with him at the kitchen table, putting this together, laying this out. Oh. Uh, and that's where I recall the discussion about what, you know, what it was inspired by and that they intentionally wanted to be really provocative and verbose and, you know, and sounding the alarm. But though the alarm was sounded... After five years of activism on this, Friends of the Market still didn't get their way. The city council approved the plan that this Merchants of Greed rhetoric was railing against. As to how many votes, uh, my, my recollection was it was unanimous. So the fight continued. Friends of the Market created a petition and collected 53,000 signatures. And, and I collected many, many signatures myself at this little stand that I had there. <laughs> But it was not sufficient to persuade the city council. In the words of Victor Steinbrook, it was politely accepted and unanimously ignored. So they smartened up, got some lawyers involved, Jerry Thone among them who's still living, and uh, they wrote a legally binding initiative that only required 21,000 signatures as opposed to, fit, but it had to start all over again with that. <laughs> 
There were delays, there were lawsuits, and eventually, in spring of 1971, in the span of a few weeks, Friends of the Market gathered more than enough signatures, again, to put the question to the voters in a November ballot initiative. The initiative has also been endorsed by more than 100 merchants in the market area. We would certainly like to keep the market at the soul of Seattle. And they won. In November 1971, Seattle voters chose to keep Pike Place Market intact. And suddenly, it was as if those long, grueling years of battle had never even happened. Something else that's chronicled in Victor Steinbrook's papers is that almost as soon as the initiative was adopted and all of these development plans crumbled to the ground, the city, and the downtown business interests even, pivoted to defending the market. They even created advertising for it. But there's one thing in here, and I think it's hilarious in some ways that Victor kept this. Mm -hmm. And it's a newspaper insert celebrating the 105th year of uh, downtown, the charter of the city and and uh, the downtown area. And it's a big full-page newspaper ad, probably from the Times of the PI, it doesn't say. And so three years previous... They're trying to tear down the market. Now the downtown people have put together this giant ad for the Pike Place Market. The public market is one of Seattle's greatest experiences. Downtown, first in Pike, over 200 booths and shops. I love this one. Enjoy a million-dollar view of Elliott Bay while you eat. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So in some ways, the story of saving Pike Place Market, this David and Goliath battle, it's a story that the city now likes to tell about itself. Victor Steinbrook and all of the many people who put so much effort into this fight, they stopped the wrecking ball. And this crown jewel was saved. And the mixed income small business community was preserved. And yet, I know what you're thinking. That wrecking ball didn't exactly leave. Seattle today is hardly the people-powered, working-class, affordable place that Victor envisioned, is it? New numbers show rental rates in Seattle are through the roof. It is becoming one of the most expensive places to rent in the entire country. And the bad news is it doesn't look like that's going down anytime soon. Victor Steinbrook's vision has proven tough to maintain, both for the city and for one of the people closest to that vision, Peter Steinbrook. As Knut and Peter were saying earlier, this fight to save Pike Place Market was Seattle's Gettysburg. It was the mother of all grassroots campaigns. And it marked a sea change in how the city handled public policy and decision-making. Because besides actually keeping the market intact, one of the things this victory marked was, it seems, the real birth of the Seattle process. As I mentioned in the last episode, the Seattle process is a phrase we now use to describe the slow and painstaking way decisions get made here. As far as I can tell, the generally accepted origin of the phrase was a 1983 column in Seattle Weekly, which referred to, quote, the usual Seattle process of consensus through exhaustion. In other words, by 1983, this process was so familiar it could be called usual. The thing is, before this whole time period in the 60s and 70s, that was just not how things happened in Seattle. 
The Seattle process, one could argue, was a natural reaction to what came before. And up to that point, you know, there was a, a power establishment, a power base in Seattle that was pretty much unshakable between politicians and business leaders and real estate interests, etc. It was pretty much dominated by white affluent society uh, that had and and much of it in behind in back rooms at the Rainier Club and other places, social clubs and the golf course, you know. Uh, and decisions were made about the future of the city without participation. For the most part, that's just not the case anymore. So Victor Steinbrook, for better or worse, had a lot to do with this part of Seattle, too. I think Victor contributed partly to the whole evolution of what we think of as Seattle process. I mean, one thing that, that he did in these various projects is he read proposals very carefully to see whether the law was being adhered to by people who were proposing to change the Pike Place Market or change Pioneer Square. You know, were they following government regulations and and whatnot? Uh, Were they following environmental regulations? So he was very attuned in the battle to head-on challenging process. He wanted to see more participation in process. He wanted to see more ground-up participation and process. Um, He wanted things to be more, yeah, discussed and debated more openly. Um, He didn't want Seattle to be completely um, bossed around by the downtown business priorities and interests. And that is an easy enough cause for a lot of people to get behind. Peter Steinbrook, who, as you'll recall, was very involved in Seattle politics himself for decades, is generally pretty accepting of his father's beliefs. It's a democratic process is what it is. I've never thought it was a bad thing. The leaders were the problem because they couldn't make decisions. That's where things break down, and that's what leads to endless process. Peter carried on the battle for Pike Place Market, for instance. So Peter resigned his post on the Pike Place Historic Commission and formed a group called the Citizens Alliance to once again save the market. And generally supported his dad in other battles. Like Westlake Mall, for example, which is another story that we haven't gotten into. And looking back, he has no regrets. I honor those things. And you know, I, I don't think that there's really anything I would have strong disagreement over. There's nothing I would say, oh, you, you're completely wrong about that, Dad. I wouldn't have done that, or why waste your time with that? No, none of that. Uh, so, you know, I can embrace and accept that and those contributions. It's just sometimes it can feel strange to live with a legacy that powerful. I mean, it's like a lot of uh, battles, you know? <laughs> you know, at some point it just becomes an onslaught and almost unstoppable in a growing, changing city. I've exper- I experienced it myself. It's one of the reasons I decided to run for city council. Peter was first elected to Seattle City Council in November 1997. He served until January 1st, 2008. Um, he died in um, February 14th, 1985 on Valentine's Day. And um, from that point on, I kind of felt like the mantle of, you know, saving Seattle had just landed on me on my back, you know. (laughs) I had already been fairly engaged, you know, for quite a few years up to that point from my youth on. And but then it, you know, I just it, it, it 
became for me something like a, an obligation and some at times felt like a real burden uh, to be carrying that load. And, and people would p impose that on me. You know, your dad wouldn't do that or you, you'd be out fighting like your dad, you know. <laughs> and it didn't allow me to make, you know, that consciousness was hard for me to make other choices that maybe had nothing to do with saving the city. There was a moral imperative, and you know, we all have the inner voice of our parents, most of us, I think. And so that inner voice would always come back to haunt me at times when I saw something destructive or wrong going on in the city, whether it be like an old building that was slated to be demolished or people being displaced from their, from their homes. I felt like a moral imperative to, to work to protect those people and those interests. A burden to carry, yeah. I'm still struggling with that. It seems Victor Steinbrook fought a lot in his life. And Peter fought for a lot of the same things. And yet, with something as complex as human beings and urban development and economic forces, it's not as if these fights ever really end. Not for the Steinbrooks and not for Pike Place Market. People have said over the years that the whole idea of saving the market is a misnomer. Hmm. Because nothing is ever saved permanently. You know, every decade or so, there is a crisis. But you can see that after it's saved, mm -hmm. there's just tremendous pressure and balancing act and money and everything that has to happen all the time. Yeah, It's never really saved. There's always something to continue to fight for. Back with Victor Steinbrook's enormous stack of files on Pike Place Market, Knut wanted to show me one last thing. It's a column from 1974 called The Pike Place Market May Make It Yet. And it's written by uh, the nom de plume is Cincinnatus. But I know for a fact that Cincinnatus at that time was David Brewster. David Brewster is a big name in Seattle media. He founded Seattle Weekly, Town Hall, and in fact, Crosscut. And uh, he's, he describes in great detail in this piece all the different constituencies. There's one constituency is Victor Steinbrook himself. He's this fiery personality we're going to have to deal with, and he's, you know, he's a Bigfoot in this whole thing. You've got the Historic Commission and what they have to do. You have uh, the president of the Development Authority and all that they have to do. You've got the city itself, so the city bureaucracy is involved and has say in certain things or approval of certain things. You've got the merchants of the market. He says, um, after listing all these constituency, it's a mess. But I guess the point I want to leave you with is not a lack of mess. Not that Seattle is now saved by some stubborn and heroic figure. Not that the future is ever certain or even in Seattle, remotely affordable. But there's just something in the legacy of Victor Steinbrook that serves as a reminder that with a lot of hard work, people can, sometimes, come together and turn the tide. But I'm feeling strangely hopeful. The right questions are being faced and the right force is representative. The process is slow and painful. What is being attempted is revolutionary. 
It is an effort to thwart the usual economics of land development, pitched as whopping gains for a few investors in order to nurse along without catastrophic infusions of money or overnight changes of usage, an institution we had almost forgotten to cherish. Here we have some oysters, clamshells that have been turned into Santas. Oh man, look at all of that seafood. And people just filled it back up with gum again. Really gross, but pretty cool too. Back at the beginning of this series, we told you why we launched it. Because the Steinbrook family had found a stash of Victor's files deep in a cellar. For probably over half a century, those files just sat there, gathering dust. But thanks to Peter, we've had a chance to take a look and tell you about what we found. And now he plans to hand them over to the University of Washington. They will be added to a public archive so anyone can see them. You have to fill out a few forms to get access. But if you want to dig into these papers yourself, someday soon, you can. Thanks for listening to Crosscut Reports. This episode was reported by Knut Berger and produced by me, Sarah Bernard. Editorial assistance from Brooklyn Jamerson Flowers. Our story editor and executive producer is Mark Baumgarten. Audio engineering by Rusty Bacall. Special thanks, of course, to Peter Steinbrook for all his help with this series. Also, a big thanks to Jenna Martin, Crosscut's associate photo editor, who photographed and scanned a lot of documents from Victor Steinbrook's files and who tracked down some additional archival images that really bring this story to life. To see all of those images, as well as an essay from Canute about this episode's discoveries, follow the link in the show notes. Or you can go to crosscut.com podcasts and click on Crosscut Reports. There's also a place on the story page where you can weigh in with your own thoughts on the legacy of Victor Steinbrook. You can subscribe to Crosscut Reports wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. This is a new show for us, and we want to know what you think. Also, if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the live events we host every month, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS9. And being a member means you can sign up for an exclusive weekly newsletter from Knut Berger, where he offers greater insight into his latest historical discoveries. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Crosscut Reports is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard. We'll be back soon with another episode. <laughs>